morning, everyone. My name is Will, one of the pastors here at New Life Press. Uh, thank you for joining us here for worship today. We are coming to a close and turning the corner on this series looking at the life and call of Abraham. And today, I'm going to be preaching from Genesis 21, which is really a transitional or, in fact, maybe a momentous uh, chapter in this story of Abraham because we finally see one of the fulfillments of God's promises of giving Abraham and Sarah their long-awaited son. And so I want to look with you at this passage to discuss some of the points of significance that we can apply here today as modern people living in Orange County in the 21st century. So if you're able, I want to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read from Genesis 21, and we do stand for the reading of word of God's Word just as an act of reverence and a sign, uh, a sign of reverence and an act of worship. I'm going to read from Genesis 21, verses 1 to 18. And so I pray that you be blessed and that your hearts will be wide open for the reading of his word today. This is verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, whom he was when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a feast, a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named." And I will make a great nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is her offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then, then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God came, called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with her hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And this is God's word. You can take your seats. We read verses uh, 1 to 18, but for our time here today, I'm focusing mostly on verses 1 to 9, but I think it still captures the heart and the main uh, essential points of Genesis 21. Uh, we're continuing the series on Abraham because one of, one of the heart and direction of where we feel God leading us is to understand through the life of Abraham how we are also called to Jesus and also pushed out and called to serve Jesus. And Abraham, perhaps more than any other Old Testament figure, encapsulates what this life looks like. Because you think this guy, and you imagine him, maybe rightfully so, is wearing a robe, has a beard, walks around with a staff. You almost confuse him with what Moses looks like, and you're thinking, what is this guy who lived 
years ago without internet, without cars, what does he have to do with my life here today? And I will say in some ways, everything. Because Abraham shows us what does it look like to be faithful in a world that is what they say pluralistic, there's different worldviews. What does it look like to be Christian and faithful in a world that has political tension, which is very much a world that we live in? And what does it look like to be a father when you have internal turmoil in your family? And that's something we can all relate to, in this passage especially. And what we have here in, this, in these verses in Genesis 21 on a simplistic level is a picture of family turmoil, of division. And actually, the word division etymologically comes from, literally means two visions, because Abraham here has two wives and he has two sons, and it creates division within the household. Literally, there are two visions, not only for Abraham's family, but God uses his family to say, there are two visions for your lives, one with Sarah, one with Hagar, one with Isaac, one with Ishmael. Abraham has two sons with two different women, but these two sons, even if you read in Galatians chapter 4, represent two types of people, two ways of life. They theologically represent two covenants, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. In fact, these are two philosophical approaches to life, one which is based on works and human effort, and the one through Isaac, which is based on a promise and through grace. But what I want to consider with you here today is that these two lives, two different people groups, two different approaches to life are really given to us poetically in this Hebrew language with two different laughters, two different kinds of laughs. Did you know, in fact, that the word laughter is there written six times in the first nine verses of this passage? Did you know that Isaac's name literally means laughter or he laughs? One of the major ideas that commentators all note is that this passage in Genesis 21 is woven together in this beautiful, intricate Hebrew poetic style through this word laughter. And I want to show you here today through the ups and downs of life why laughter is so important because when you look at this passage, Jesus isn't just the Lord of life, he's the Lord of laughter. And we're going to look at what really Moses, who wrote this, is teaching us about laughter in the ups and downs when you think about living in a life uh, faithfully in a world that's pluralistic and has political tension. So I want to look at with you just two points. First, we'll consider this laughter of joy, laughter of celebration, a laughter that's represented to us in Isaac. And secondly, we'll look at a laughter of bitterness, a laughter of anger, a laughter of jealousy and envy, a laughter of resentment. And we're going to look at those two and contrast those two ways of life given to us in two different laughters. So let's look at this together. First, when you look at this promise that has been finally fulfilled, there is a joyful, celebratory, reassuring, comforting, just someone hit the lottery and there's a laughter of joy. Because if you didn't know the story of Abraham and you're joining us for the first time, one of the big promises that God says to Abraham and Sarah is saying, I'm going to give you a son, and this son will be the heir of your throne. It will be the, the king of nations. This son will be uh, really the father of many other sons and future generations. And through this promise to Abraham and Sarah, God gives Isaac. And through Isaac, there are many, many thousands of people as numerous as the stars. And through this family, you'll have the son of Jesus Christ. But if you just understand Abraham and Sarah, 
they're waiting decades. They're old. And God keeps coming to them and saying, just wait a little bit longer. I'm going to give you a son. And at some point, you just don't believe anymore. I mean, in Genesis 21, Abraham is about 100 years old. Sarah is 90. You just kind of give up. But it's right at that moment of hopelessness where you're about to lose your faith. Not that Abraham was, but you and I may be like that. When God finally fulfills a promise and gives him and her Isaac. Read with me verse 6. After they gave him a son, it says in verse 6, And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone hears will laugh over me. You know, that's a laughter. That's a laughter of joy. And by the way, God does have a sense of humor. It's clear there in the verse because it said God has made this laughter. God is actually the greatest comedic. He's the greatest comedian. He has godly, heavenly humor, which we could probably spend some time talking about. But there's a laughter here because finally they get this son, and the promise has finally became real. This is a laughter of joy, a laughter of patience, a laughter of celebration, a laughter of God showing his faithfulness and finally falling through with the promises that he's given. This is Hebrew poetry, and the author wants us to see that laughter is intricately bound up in our lives. It shows us that laughter is a voice of communication, that laughter can be a way to celebrate and to proclaim the goodness of God. Because you can laugh with people in joy and community, or you can laugh at people in sin, hatred, and bullying. Laughter is a world-class, universal way to communicate. And so before I dig into a little bit about this laughter of joy of Sarah, and why it's so important and applied to you, I want to talk to you about really the significance of humor and laughter in our culture, but also in the Bible, and then I'm going to run it back to applying it to your lives and mine through the life of Sarah. You probably know this, but just to remind ourselves, laughter really communicates a life story. It's a communication, it's a language that could communicate your circumstance, it could communicate your personality, Laughter can say you're in tough times. Laughter can also say you're in great times. I mean, even when a guy and girl gets together on a date or husband and wife, a lot of times the reason they click is because the wife or husband get each other through humor. She laughs at my jokes. She gets me. I think he's really funny. And you can bring communities together because some of you are so gifted, and this is something maybe odd, but if you have the gift of making people laugh, but in a godly way, not by just ridiculing people. You really have a gift of community because one of the things you recognize about laughter is that it draws people together. You think about your college life. You think about your middle school life. And children, like students, you, you love to be around guys that are fun and funny, and then you just laugh all the time. And it brings and builds a lot of memories in life because laughter has that power. Laughter also just gives you a sense of your context and culture. Because we'll look at Sarah. She's laughing and it expresses her context of celebration and joy, but she didn't always laugh like that. Because we could look back at Genesis 17, and they laughed, Abraham and Sarah, a few chapters before, but it was a very different kind of laughter. So laughter can communicate culture, communicate your context, your life story. Studies all around in psychology and sociology, they'll tell you, that studies show that people from more collectivistic cultures from Asia, like China, they are less likely to use aggressive humor, you know, humor that kind of makes fun of people. They're more likely to use affiliative humor, humor that kind of builds community and has a communal mindset. 
especially compared to individualistic cultures like Canada and us, where we use humor oftentimes to kind of make people laugh, to politic, to network, and sometimes to put people down. Other research has found that people from Eastern cultures are less likely to use humor as a coping strategy because humor is sort of a second-class attribute. Generally, humor in Eastern cultures are viewed as an attribute or characteristic that's not really valuable as opposed to cultures like us in the West. You know, even one of the common questions when I moved out here in 2011, one of the most common questions I got was, what was the difference between living in New York, New Jersey, and the West Coast in Orange County? What are some of the differences? And I would say, you know, the weather's nice. You know, there's different cultural idols. Comfort may be a little bit stronger in Orange County. But one of the things I said was that, that was glaring for me, was that humor and laughter were so different between New Jersey and California. You know, California humor, it's, it's nice, it's wholesome, it's innocent, you know, it's very sunny and smiley, whereas East Coast humor was a little bit sarcastic. You put down people, you actually laugh at other people's expenses. It was witty in the sense that, you know, somebody's going to have to pay the price for this. And after I thought about this, I was like, yeah, that's kind of what I grew up with 16 years. And when I came to California, I realized I didn't laugh for like three years, my first three years in Orange County. Because it tells you about your experience and your culture. Research even at the University College of London indicates that laughter has commanding cross-cultural significance. So even though we can express and use laughter differently, one thing that all sociologists say is that despite diversity in language, despite diversity in lifestyle and culture, laughter is one common way that all nationalities express emotion. It gives voice to our circumstances, our highs and our lows, our joys and our sorrows, the happiness and our pain. But even in the Bible, like many things in the Bible, laughter can be used for good or for evil. Because I said, if you have the gift of laughter, you bring joy, you bring community, you bring cohesiveness, you make things fun, you're a gatherer, you're so good at making people laugh that you make life better. But laughter and humor can also be used for bad because if you bully a kid and put a sign on his back and he's walking down the hallways of school and the whole school is laughing at you or you post a picture on social media just at someone else's expense, that could be oppressive, that could be abusive, that could be... That could be bullying, and it creates a lot of pain and sorrow that can last a long time. So humor can be used for good and bad, but laughter in the Bible, did you know laughter and humor is everywhere in the Bible? And in the Bible, the way that God uses laughter in some ways is actually has a moral dimension. A moral dimension. Did you even think about that? Well, I just said laughter could be used for good and bad, but God laughs at his enemies, especially in a passage like Psalm 2.4. He's looking at people who defy him. He laughs over them. It was a laughter of his sovereign power, a laughter of his holiness, because he'll laugh at his enemies who reject him and neglect him. The prophets laugh at people's idols, especially as we, as people, as the people of God, we turn away from God. We commit spiritual adultery, and the prophets laugh at that kind of stupidity. The Proverbs, they laugh at laziness because they're saying that's not really holiness. That's not really a way to live life in righteousness. So the Proverbs will use these extreme circumstances to serve truth, to say, look at this contrast of life. Look at the, the lazy sluggard. And it'll use these absurd examples because they're saying laughter is a way to crystallize truth and it serves truth. 
especially in holiness and the moral dimension, Jesus even uses humor, arguably, to mock the religious leaders. So laughter in the Bible serves a way to talk about holiness and talk about sin. It has a teaching purpose. Laughter is used to accentuate, to highlight, to crystallize, to make more powerful a biblical truth so that we are pursuing grace, forgiveness, and holiness. I mean, even the greatest poets, they they understand this. Writers and literary people, you know that poetry and imagery and humor can really crystallize the message. It could really speak the same truth in a much more profound way. And the Bible uses that to talk about holiness and your sin and encourage us to pursue God because laughter serves and undergirds a teaching purpose, a biblical truth. Now, case in point, two daughters, Riley and Reese, they don't know I'm going to share this story. I'm going to get in trouble later. (laughs) Asked them once, what's your favorite sermon ever at New Life? Coming up in 12 years, what has been your favorite sermon at New Life? And they immediately said a while ago, Judges 3, when Pastor Andrew spoke that. I was on sabbatical, they came. And Judges 3 is like, well, why'd you like that? That's a weird passage, because they thought it was so funny when Ehud falls on his sword and dung came out. (laughs) And for like two months, they kept saying, the dung came out, the dung came out. That's the best verse in the Bible. You know, you get a tattoo of it, make a sticker of it on your bumper, bumper sticker on your car, because the dung came out. (laughs) I don't know if that's really humor or not, but why is that detail there? Because it's actually a sad story, but the Bible uses that. So let's rope this back into Abraham and Sarah. Laughter is part of our culture. It gives voice and language to our good and bad. It gives expression to different cultures across the globe and even east and west coast. The Bible uses laughter to talk about holiness and talk about sin. It's a moral dimension. And all of that is wrapped up in the laughter of Sarah because right now it's a, it's a laughter of celebration. It's a laughter, a laughter of peace and fulfillment, God finally gave me a son, and they named the son Laughter. God fulfills his promise finally after decades, and Abraham is 100 and Sarah is 90. I mean, can you imagine being 190 and you're changing diapers, you're trying to breastfeed at 90? And what does this look like? That must have been so hard. But they're laughing about this because God came through on his word. Let's look at, I mean, you don't have to read this. I'm just going to highlight this. They're celebrating that God is faithful to his word because in verses 1 to 2, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he has promised. So in some ways, Sarah's laughter is a celebration of God's word because God came through. He did what he promised. He did what he said. Even the next verse, in verse 2, Sarah conceived as the time that God had spoken. She's laughing because she's happy. She's celebrating the promises and the goodness and the faithfulness of God. But it wasn't always like that, wasn't it? Genesis 17, 18, they're a lot younger back in 17, 18. God came to them again and says, hey, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. What did Abraham do? He laughed. But that wasn't a laughter of joy. That was a laughter of faithlessness. That was a laughter of hopelessness. That was a laughter of pride. That was a laughter of mocking God because Abraham is already really old and God said, don't worry, I'm still going to give you a biological son. And he laughed and saying, he laughed. I imagine it being something like, look at this guy. Tell me I'm going to have a son. He's just laughing because it's ludicrous. Sarah hears this in chapter 18. What does she do? She laughs as well. She's saying, this old body, this old woman, And she left, God's going to give me a son at this age? 
It's a laughter of faithlessness. And you see this transformation and you see this evolution. You see this development in their faith because they went from a laughter of hopelessness and faithlessness to a laughter of faithfulness and thankfulness. This is a passage where laughter has been redeemed. People have been transformed. It's just using it in poetic form to say that in our life circumstances where Abraham and Sarah were desperate, they were waning on spiritual ostracizing, spiritual orphanage. They're like, can I believe in this God? Is it going to get me through? Remember, a woman's identity back then was bound up in her ability to bear a child, and Sarah is saying, I'm never going to be anybody. Laughter here in 1718 is communicating an impossible situation, but God redeems it. He turns it into joy, keeps his promises, he fulfills his word. Friends, what kind of laughter do you have here today in your life? Are you the 17 and 18 laughter looking at something really big before you? and saying, this marriage is hard, this parenting is hard. Students in youth group, are you looking and saying, grades are hard, friends are hard, college is hard, this seems insurmountable, I'm never going to get through this, and your laughter is like, this life, it's, it stinks, forget it. Is that where you are? Well, I have good news for you, because join, join the club, we're all part of this. And the hope and the lesson for you is to say, God hears your laughter of hopelessness, of pain, of incredulity, of saying, this, this, this isn't going to work. God hears that laughter. You're long-suffering, you're persevering, but his promise is to show you in Genesis 21 that he hears your laughter of pain and hopelessness, but he's true to his word. He's faithful to what he's going to do. It doesn't mean he's going to fix all your problems in the way that you want and the timing of it, but he will say, I hear your laughter of hopelessness, of faithfulness, but I'm still the same God. And just be patient, persevere, because he'll turn your laughter of hopelessness into a laughter of faithfulness. He'll transform your laughter in which says this is impossible to say, with God, all things are possible, and his promises are yes and amen. He'll comfort you. He's right there with you. He's going to be there with you. He's going to change and transform you. He's going to make you more faithful. He's going to build your faith up as he transitions and conforms and speaks and heals your life in the moments of laughter of faithfulness to the laughter of hopefulness, the laughter of fruitfulness to the laughter of faithfulness. God can do that as he just did with Abraham and Sarah because it just doesn't stop there. See, the reason that you and I can believe that God will speak into our laughters is because, as I've said, generations later and thousands of years later, there is somebody that was the son because Isaac was a miracle baby born in political tension. He pointed towards a greater and true Isaac, which is Jesus, who is also a miracle baby, born of the virgin birth, born in political tension with the Roman government. Jesus is the one who's born for you, and he assures you that he walks with you, his spirit dwells with you. Jesus, which is kind of funny, you never see Jesus actually laugh in the Bible and the gospel, but he uses humor to talk about Pharisees, to talk about religiosity, to talk about those who are faithless, and he'll use this because he's saying, I came into this world because I want your laughters to be joyful and peaceful and hopeful and faithful. Jesus understands who you are, and he enters into your world, and he says, I'll never let you go. I'll always walk with you. He will laugh with you. And that's one of the greatest pictures that I just imagine, you know, just talking to Jesus, we sort of assume he must be boring. He must be so solemn. He must be so just, just too holy to talk to. I think Jesus is going to be the most fun person that you and I will ever meet. 
He'll convict us. He'll cry with us. He'll laugh with us. We'll celebrate with him. We're going to worship him. He's going to heal us because he came into this world and he'll redeem the laughters of Genesis 18 to make it like a laughter of Genesis 21. Let's move on. Let's look at the second laughter. That's the laughter of joy. But in verses 8 to 9, we have a laughter of bitterness. Let's read this together. Verses 8 to 9 says this, And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned, probably around three years old. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. Now, sort of at this parenthetical note, some people say, look, Christianity supports polygamy and multiple wives. It doesn't. Now, we're not going to get into this. But every time you see an example in the Old Testament of polygamy where a patriarch has multiple wives, it always leads to disaster. It's telling us clearly that is not God's design. And also just remember, the design for marriage comes in Genesis. One man, one woman, they are holy, they're united holy matrimony. They have children for future generations. Anytime culture and humanity take on God's plan in their own will and they begin to have many wives, the families are always decimated. And we see this as one example. But if you look here, in verse 9, it says, Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. That word for laughing is a very different laugh than Sarah and Isaac. That word for laughing also means mocking. Some commentators say that it's really strong. It even means abusive bullying. Some even go further and say it was some sort of physical oppression. In Galatians chapter 4.29, Paul talks about Isaac and Ishmael and said Ishmael persecuted Isaac. That's the type of laugh. It's a very different laugh. A laugh of bullying, a laugh of pride, a laugh of hatred, a laugh of persecution, a laugh, a laugh of mocking. Isaac, understandably, he was a threat to Ishmael. Because Ishmael, he gets it. You can understand why. Ishmael, at this point, is probably around 14 to 16 years old. He was a teenager. He was old enough to see what's going on, and he knew at that point, I was the only son to Abraham. That means all of Abraham's riches, all of his land, that's going to be my inheritance. I'm going to be the heir to everything that Abraham has. But when Isaac was born, now do you know what Isaac was to Ishmael? He was a threat. He was a threat to Ishmael's identity, his riches, his possessions. And resentment immediately builds. Bitterness slowly begins to grow. And that's why he laughed at Isaac. He bullied him, he mocked him, he tortured him, he abused him. He persecuted him, according to Galatians 4. Why? Because he was resentful, he was bitter. Friends, let me ask you a simple question before we sort of go into a small little counseling session. Are you resentful today about life about somebody in this room, your family? Are you bitter? What is bitterness? See, bitterness is funny. It's hard to define, but so easily felt. You recognize this. My guess is that many of you are probably bitter about something, resentful about something. And so I want to talk with you a little bit about that, and how does the gospel speak into this? There's this professor from Southern Baptist Seminary, but he's also a counselor, Robert D. Jones. He wrote this book called Freedom from Resentment, Stopping Hurts from Turning Bitter. And he gives a couple of real-life counseling examples 
fake names, but I think you and I can maybe relate to this just to give you a little bit more color of how resentment and bitterness can grow. The first example he gives is about a woman. She's married with a couple of kids named Carla, didn't have the greatest relationship with her husband's parents. The mother-in-law comes and lives with them for a couple of months, and many of you wives are probably hating your husbands right now. Mother-in-law comes in, lives with them. What is the first thing does the mother-in-law do to Carla? Start, starts telling her how to raise her kids, ridiculing her, criticizing her parenting tactics. So what happens? Resentment grows and builds. And in this particular case, the mother-in-law goes back home, but every time the mother-in-law called her husband Max, Max would be so kind to his mom, loved his mom. But Carla had growing bitterness, and she was getting angry at her husband. Why don't you stand up for me? When your mom was telling me how to parent, why don't you say something? To the point that every time the phone rang, it triggered her to a bloody boiling point. Bitterness, resentment. Another example they give was this guy, Doug. Single guy, young, 20s, whole life ahead of him. He got out a job, a temporary job as a waiter at a high-end restaurant, making a lot of money. And in the beginning, the manager gave him a lot of hours and gave him the weekends because he made make the most money on the weekends. And he was killing it. He was working hard. He thought he was the best waiter. And all of a sudden, things changed without a moment's notice. He got less hours. He would request the weekends, but he would never get the weekends. He finally, he built up enough courage to talk to the manager and say, I wanted more hours. I've realized that you're not giving me weekends. I just want to know what I can do. And the manager just brushed him off. No explanation, no empathy. Just say, I got to take care of the business in the restaurant and just brushed him off. So Doug, all of a sudden, in the context of work and money, began to grow angry, bitter, resentful. It was like a disease. There's so many ways that you and I can relate to these stories, and you have your own. And it's not a good feeling. Bitterness, envy, resentment is the only one of those seven deadly sins that doesn't have a moment in which it feels good. You know, anger sometimes does, because when you lash on on someone, there's a split sense in which you feel really good about anger. Or when you steal money, which is really bad, there's a moment in which you feel good about stealing. But Bitterness and resentment never has that good feeling. It's a disease, that I'd say, that kind of stays with you. So let's talk about this. What is bitterness and resentment? They're sort of synonymous. At the end of the day, you could think about it this way. Bitterness is settled anger, meaning that it just decides to live with you. It resides in you. It's the kind that not merely reacts to someone's offense against you, but bitterness is a more general, developed, evolved, global animosity against the person himself. In other words, anger oftentimes responds to an incident. You're saying, I'm angry at what you said. I'm angry at what you did. But when anger is not resolved and you don't forgive the person, anger, it, it develops, it grows into bitterness because bitterness grows to a deeper form, an attitude, a settled posture against the perpetrator. I'm bitter at you because now you are an evil person because the incident becomes this matter of secondary importance. And you're just bitter at the person no matter what they do. Every time you see the person, you're resentful. I don't like him or her. In a figurative sense, bitterness refers to a mental or emotional state that eats away at your soul. It's a state of mind that willfully holds on to feelings of hatred and anger, resentment in relationships. It's ready to take offense, ready to lash out in anger. When we succumb to bitterness, we allow it to rule our hearts and engage in a spirit which never wants to forgive. 
This author, Tish Warren, talks about bitterness, and she explains it in her own experience. She was talking about when somebody, a close friend, turned ba- her back on her and began to uh, slander her and question her character, and she felt so bitter against this person. She said, in her experience of what bitterness is like, she says, here's what I wanted during that time. I wanted my adversary to be brought to justice. I wanted my side of the story to be heard and my hurt to be acknowledged. I wanted vindication in front of those who've heard my integrity questioned, not tomorrow, next year. I want this now. I want my story to be heard. And this is what bitterness says in your heart. Bitterness cries out for justice, saying, this isn't right. Bitterness in your heart actually says there's not enough clarity. And you get this, right? You're saying, when somebody hurts you, I want the person to pay. I want my sorrow and my hurt to be revealed. I want it to be understood. I want people in the world to know how bad this other person is and how much I'm suffering. But here's the problem. You also are somebody that the Bible says is a sinner. And sometimes your bitterness is really a cry that says, I deserve better. I deserve better. Now, pastors get bitter too. Did you know that? I hope you know that. Pastors get bitter. I get bitter. All kinds of different reasons. You know, there's envy and hatred. There's low-key, passive-aggressive anger. You know, just as examples, pastors pretend to be holy. We, we pretend to be, uh, we're advocating for other pastors. But yeah, when you, when you have a friend and a pastor, his church is a little bit bigger than ours. The church budget is a little bit bigger than mine. And friends, are, they get asked to speak at different conferences more than I do. There's a competitive spirit, and then it finally comes to a point where all of a sudden, you feel kind of resentful of this guy because you're thinking, I'm better than him. I deserve better. Pastors do this all the time. We feel this with members too because maybe we feel misunderstood. Maybe we feel that we were close to somebody and they turned their back on us. And this isn't to say anything that, you know, past, you know, we do this all the time. It's just an experience. I think members feel all kinds of bitterness towards sins that pastors like myself have committed. It's just to say bitterness and resentment is a universal human condition. And the heart of it says, I deserve better. I, want, I am the judge, and I want to execute judgment now. I want justice to be had. I want my voice to be heard. But you don't get it, and then bitterness continues to grow. So here's what you do, friends. What do you do if you're bitter here today? What are you going to do? You can gossip about people, get angry at people, you can hold it in. You can kind of be stronger and hold in your anger, but actually what that does is turn up the heat in the oven of your heart, and bitterness grows to the next level. You can't just release your anger and your bitterness and resentment because that's just placing yourself as a judge. You can't yell at the person that you're bitter against. You can't yell at God because of the circumstances you're resentful for. It doesn't work. The only hope that you have in the good news for you and me is that Jesus understands your bitterness. If there was anybody who had every reason to be resentful and to be bitter, it was Jesus Christ. He's the answer. He's the one who had every reason to lash out on people because he was the ultimate one who was mistreated. He came to save people, but people hated him. They rejected him. John chapter 1 verse 11, he was despised and rejected by men. Jesus was sinned against. He was mocked. He was taunted. He was punched. He was spit upon. He was abandoned. He was crucified. The mistreated one is the one who now lives with us, has forgiven us. His spirit dwells within our hearts. 
He helps us to handle and heal our resentment and bitterness. If there's someone who understands resentment and bitterness in life, it's Jesus, because he's the only one in the ultimate sense who deserved to lash out. But no, what did he do? He went to the cross to die for your bitterness and your resentment. He died on the cross so that now he can pour out his love for you, so that now you can receive his love and pour out love to people around you. Do you know what the cure to bitterness and resentfulness is? Look to the lavish love of Jesus, who had every right to be resentful towards you. But he did the exact opposite, and he gave his life for you, to wash you, to cleanse you with his blood, to give you his new life, robes of white righteousness to make you holy so that in Jesus Christ, you could pour out that same love of Jesus to people around you who you are bitter against. Well, you don't believe me? Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 to 32. The Apostle Paul writes this to the church at Ephesus and says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, that's really just one set of sins. You know, you clamor, you slander, you're wrathful, you're bitter, be put away with you along with all malice. That's the cluster of sins we're talking about. Verse 32 is the answer. What does he say? Be kind to one another. How in the world am I going to do that? Be tenderhearted. How am I going to do that? Forgiving one another. I don't want to forgive. I have anger. How am I going to do that? Because God in Christ forgave you. God in Christ forgave you. And that will change you and transform you to forgive one another. Are you resentful of people in the past? My guess is that people who are resentful today have been resentful for the same person, same situation for years because that's how resentment and bitterness is. It, it camps out in your heart and is there for years. Maybe in your marriages, your children, children with your parents. That's a big one if we could have time to this. This is the time for those and you students to take a shot. And if you're bitter at someone in your family and your parents, don't let that fester. Because youth group, if you're bitter against your parents now, I'm 45, 46 years old, it doesn't go away unless God in Christ has forgiven you and you talk it out and forgive your parents. It's going to stay. It'll change you for decades. Just trust me on this one. Don't trust me. Trust the Bible. It'll stay with you forever. But the good news here, and I almost made this a three-point sermon, is that we see that there's a laughter of joy and then laughter of bitterness but the good news is that God gets the last laugh, a laughter of victory, a laughter of hope, a laughter of the kingdom, a laughter of joyous community because he sent his son Jesus to you so that we could be part of his family and we're all just in a holy laughter of a holy family. And that's the good news. That's the hope that we have because even God here with two different types of people of Isaac and Ishmael, he loves them both. Did you see this? Isaac, you're going to be my people Ishmael, I'm going to make you a great nation. That's how big God's love is. He loves both his church, but also the people on the kingdom, hoping that they can be part of the church. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another. Be tenderhearted to one another. Forgiving one another. Oh, God, I feel so bitter. I know I can do it because God has forgiven you in Christ Jesus. We could celebrate that. We could laugh about that. We could find joy and peace in that. And I pray that's exactly what we do. Let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. 
We thank you so much for these stories that are true and historical because we relate to them. They speak into our lives about bitterness and joy and hopelessness. We pray that we would push all our hearts by your power of your spirit towards the cross where we see bitterness and resentment, hatred and anger transformed into love, grace, holiness. Thank you, God, so much for who you are as shown to us in your son. We love you, God, and pray that we would forgive each other as God has forgiven us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.